Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Today we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And if you are uh, even a beginner student, you know that Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We have the Sermon on the Mount in two accounts of the gospel. We have it in Luke and we have it in Matthew. Luke's account's about 30 verses, 29 verses. Matthew's account is about 111 11 verses. And uh, so we may take a look at Matthew's account for several weeks. Uh, as a matter of fact, today we're going uh, verse by verse exposition. I don't. Uh, I'd love to get through the Beatitudes today if we can, but I love doing verse-by-verse exposition. I don't know why I've not tried that sooner. I was kind of afraid to do it because it was something new, and I'm a Baptist, and we just don't do that. I don't know what's wrong with people. But um, anyway, um, but uh, we're going to take a look at it. It's so important. So important what Jesus has to say in these verses. And so let's start together. We'll read, uh, we'll read several of the verses and then we will go back and talk about the message and then look at the text. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He said, Blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who have been persecuted. That's apropos for today. They've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. And blessed are you. Notice he goes to second person here. He's looking directly at his disciples now. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you falsely and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. 
Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Lastly, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are about to take a look at the greatest sermon preached by the greatest preacher alive. I used to say by the greatest preacher who ever lived, but he's still alive. And what he has to say is absolutely valuable to us. He is continuing what he started earlier. A few verses back in the previous chapter, Jesus began his ministry, his public ministry. In chapter 4, verse 17, I'll read it. For at that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's so easy to overlook in our culture today. Most people would think, no, Jesus wouldn't start his ministry with repent. He would start his ministry with something like love or he would start his ministry with something more inclusive or, or, or less judgmental because to tell people that they need to repent, to make such a broad statement to so many, that indicates that Jesus knew that we have problems and all of us have them and there are things in our life that we need to allow God to change. And there are places we need to turn around, do an about face. Is there enough of that? That needs to go away. We need to ask God to forgive us and repent of that sin. And so he begins his ministry with the word repent. And then he says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I will tell you there is no difference between kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. You'll find kingdom of heaven mostly in Matthew's gospel. But there is no difference. It's basically the same uh, as kingdom of God. It is a kingdom that belongs to God. And we're going to talk about that for just a moment. The kingdom of God, and I hope and pray, this is one of those things that I've asked God, please help me to be able to explain it in a way where we can understand it. And it's not that your understanding is lacking. My ability to explain these things is, is what suffers. So I just ask God to help me. But the kingdom of God is not something way off somewhere. The kingdom of God is wherever God has rule and reign and authority. And if we are a part of the kingdom of God, that means that we are part of it because we are born again. We have a king now. We don't go, we're sent. We don't tell, we're told. We have someone who is a ruler in our life. And kingdom, the other part of the word is dominion. And if you have a dominion, then you have a place that is separate from any other place, any other uh, surrounding place, whatever it might be. So there, it's a particular uh, place to be when you're in the kingdom of God. Now, this is what's kind of tough for us to grasp. You, if you are born again Christian, you're in the kingdom of God, but you might be married to someone who is not. The kingdom of God, is it draws a line right between, first of all, the world. 
It separates. There's only two kinds of people according to the kingdom of God. Those that are a part of it and those who are a part of the kingdom of the world. That's the only two divisions in the world that really make a whole lot of difference. But even in families, in the dearest relationships, you may be married to someone that's not a part of it and you are. You may be parents that are but have children who are not. And remember Jesus said, do not even think that I came to bring peace and, and to pull us all together. No, he said, following me, it's a sword. He said, it'll sever the dearest relationships that you have. Fathers against sons and daughters against mothers and, and, and those precious relationships, it will divide because some of us are in the kingdom and others are not. It's not something to be prideful about. It is only by His grace. And if you want to be a part of the kingdom, congratulations. That's why we're preaching this sermon. We want you to be. He wants you to be. That's why He left the heaven's glory and came here Himself, the Creator of the universe, to teach and preach to us about the kingdom of God. There's a kingdom of this world. And I can tell you it thinks completely differently than the kingdom of God. They're Christians. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you, this line... It goes right through our churches as well because you can be a part of a church all your life and go every Sunday and not be a part of the kingdom of God. And that might sound weird to you. It might sound like that. Just how can that be? But I want to tell you, there are Jews here that are listening to what Jesus has to say, and there is not one of them in the crowd that doubts that he or she is a part of the kingdom of God. And for the vast majority of them, they are wrong. So if they can be so wrong, and they're far more religious than will ever be, then we need to learn what does it mean to be part of the kingdom of God. Of course, if you're a born-again Christian, you are part of His kingdom. But we live our lives every day with people who aren't. We live our lives every day with people who have a different set of values than we do. Things that we believe are wrong and things that we know that dishonor God and, 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 and hurt God and, and would hurt our testimonies, we may not participate in them. So the kingdom of the world is going to look at us and think we're weird or think we're crazy or think we're some kind of fanatic. Jesus said, remember, you are a part of a different kingdom. And even though we are in the world, he says, you are not of the world. That's tough. It's tough to really wrap your mind around that. It's, it's hard to admit that, yeah, I, I, I have a great wife, Pastor, and she loves me and cares about the kids, but she really has very little concern for God. Unfortunately, most of the time it's a wife telling me that, Pastor, I have a husband. I, he's a good man. He's a good provider. Uh, he loves his family, but, but to be honest, he's just never shown any sign whatsoever that he is submitted to God in any way, shape, form, or fashion. That is a line that cuts through us at the deepest level. 
Some people don't realize that that's what Jesus came to tell us about. There is two kingdoms. There are two kingdoms, and there's his kingdom and the kingdom of the world. And that was the main subject of everything that Jesus preached. I think sometimes people pretend that Jesus came here to change the world. If he came here to change the world, he failed miserably. But that's not what he came here to do. As a matter of fact, in 1 John 2, 17, John writes to us and says, the world is passing away. This world's going away. And also it's lust, all the stuff about it that is just absolutely at a fever pitch for self-gratification. All of the wickedness that we see in the world is passing away with this world. But the one who does the will of God, that's the one who lives forever. Yet another division that Jesus has brought forth in his preaching and teaching to us. I think Jesus had a really interesting conversation with Pilate when Jesus was on trial and Jesus was talking with Pilate about the nature of truth and things like that. It's pretty incredible. Pilate looked at Jesus in John 18 verse 35 and says, I'm not a Jew. He says, your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? (laughs) And Jesus answered and said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. That's what every kingdom would be like. It's what you Romans would be doing. It's, it's what all of the, it's the Egyptians, the, all of your enemies, Pilate, all of them that you face and the Parthians and all of them that you fight, that's what they do in earthly kingdoms. You take their king hostage and boy, they come after you with the sword. But he says, they're not fighting because my kingdom is not of this world. He goes on to say, my kingdom is not of this realm. And then in the next verse, verse 37, Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered and said, You say correctly that I am a king, for I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. So why doesn't everybody get it? How is it that I'm standing up here preaching and telling you that the vast majority of the world don't get it and never will get it? He answered that. Jesus went on to say, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Man, some are never going to hear his voice. You can talk to him till you're blue in the face. And when it really gets tough and you, you, you really press the issue and you talk about biblical truth the way that Jesus presented it, then you began to make enemies, and people began to get angry. And what's so sad nowadays, it's not atheists out there that, that are pitching such a fit. They, they, atheists give me very little trouble. I don't meet a lot of them, and, and I have very few conversations with them. No, it is people who claim to be children of God, but they just can't bring themselves to believe that most of the world is going to hell when it dies. Even though God's Word tells us that the way is narrow and few there be that ever find it, 
Jesus said that himself. He said, many will come to me in the end and I will tell them, depart from me. I never knew you. But we love Jesus. We just don't love the things that he said. It's incredible. Sadly, most will never ever hear his voice. So let's take a look. Let's take a look at what Jesus actually said. This is such a unique opportunity to get to hear Jesus Christ himself preach to us. Verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Jesus usually always had two groups of people. And it's no different here. He's got the crowd and he's got his disciples. But it says after he sat down, his disciples came to him. That was a signal. If you were a rabbi, your disciples were around mingling with the crowd and you sat down, they knew it's teaching time. It's teaching time. Jesus has pulled out the proverbial stool and sat down and he is ready to teach. So his disciples come to him. We really won't hear anything else from the crowd until we get almost to the very end of the sermon. And the crowd is going to say, wow, we are amazed because he taught as one who had authority. And what they basically meant by that, not that he, boy, he was hammering it out, you know, with the cadence and all of that we're used to hearing when people talk about just good, hard preaching. No, Jesus never footnoted anybody. Rabbis would always say, well, Rabbi Hillel said, or Rabbi Shaman said, but Jesus never footnoted anybody. They said he spoke as if he had authority, but of course that can't be true, I'm sure they were thinking, because for him to speak like that of his own authority, that would mean he is, no, can't be God. Yeah, boy, this was the start of a lot of trouble for Jesus Christ. He saw the crowds and his disciples came to him. In verse 2, he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, we're not going to skip this verse either, began to teach them. Man, he was teaching them when the sermon starts, and if you go to the end of it, it says he was teaching them. So I would say this, if I were teaching a class to young preachers, I would make sure they know that when the greatest preacher who is alive preached the greatest sermon ever preached, he started teaching, he continued teaching, and he ended with teaching. That is absolutely important. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you something that might shock you. We know that there's a lot of liberal preaching, progressive preaching, guys that kind of shade all of the rough edges and what the Bible calls sin. They may not, or they may just deny it, period. I don't know. But let me tell you something. I believe that in the church in America, shallow preaching has done more damage than liberal preaching. Because we recognize liberal preaching 
But when someone stands in the pulpit and reads one verse and sort of uses it as a diving board and just takes off and goes in a total different direction, does it teach us anything about that verse or the context of it or what that verse means but tells a lot of funny jokes and throws in a story here and there, burst into tears just at the right moment and preaches so loud you just think, man, I'm going to be deaf before I leave here and gets the old cadence going where you got that going on the whole time he's preaching. And and I'm sorry, I, I, I don't mean to be derogatory, but I can tell you my heart breaks because I know a lot of preachers that when they get out of the pulpit today, their congregation is going to leave and say, man alive, boy, he really let us have it today. Oh yeah, boy, that, that, that was good. Well, well, what did you learn today? Uh, what did we learn today, huh? That's always my move. <laughs> we learned nothing. We got revved up. We found out Barack Obama is still a scourge. We learned that Trump might be the ne- next Messiah. I, and I don't, don't take all that to heart. I'm just telling you, I know how to get amens. Really, I do. <laughs> I got some Biden stuff that would, man, he is a plethora. He is a, a bottomless well of cool things to say that will get you amens, but it will not teach anybody anything about what the Word of God has to say. If you say one thing ever anywhere about the preaching at Cornerstone Fellowship, the one thing that I would love for you to be able to tell people is that when you come here, you hear the Word of God expounded. We do Bible exposition. We don't read a verse and then have five things that's just been gnawing in our gut that have nothing to do with the verse. When I was young in the ministry, I was pretty careless, but, but I didn't know any better. So I thought all these older preachers, they got it together, and I need to learn from them. So one Sunday night in my first church, I invited a guy in to preach, and he stood and preached, and boy, he read that verse that where Jesus told his disciples, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And I want you to know that was about the last thing he said that made any sense at all. He talked about all the fish in the ocean. He says, there's old puff fish. You don't want to be like him. He blows up when he gets mad. He just barrels out of there wide open. Then there's old catfish. He's always looking for something dead down on the bottom, man, and trying to stir up a stink. And everybody was laughing. It was funny. It, 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 It was, yeah, shallow. We learned nothing about Jesus calling the disciples. We learn nothing about Jesus telling them, I didn't call you because you're fishers of men. I called you and I will make you fishers of men. I know you know how to catch fish. I want to teach you. I will have to make you into what you need to be. You cannot do it on your own. You have to allow me to touch and transform your life. And your giftedness is not something with which you were born. It is a gift from the Spirit of God. If he had just said that and had a heart attack and died, we'd have had a better service. Paul told Timothy, he said, preach the word, Timothy. 
preach the word. He didn't say preach about the word. He didn't say use a verse, get you a sermon, and then find you a verse to kind of kick it off with. Good, good sermon starter. No, he says preach the word. And so Jesus begins to preach. Now, as I told you already, every Jew here that could hear his voice already believe that I am righteous enough to be in the kingdom. I give to the poor. I pray and I read the Torah. That's the three pillars of Judaism. I take care of all those things. The Pharisees thought they did it better than anybody else. The Sadducees thought they did it cooler than anybody else. The Zealots thought they did it louder than anybody else. And the Zakari thought they did it more deadly than anybody else. But they all thought they did it. And they all thought they had it. So while they sit and listen to this sermon, I want to tell you something. If their eyes could have been opened, they would have been opened here. Jesus is about to preach to them about what it really means to be righteous. As a matter of fact, when we get to verse 20, we should be there in a couple of years. He says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, they didn't get it. They thought we ought to surpass the, the righteousness of the Pharisees. See, they're thinking about effort. Now, when it comes to effort and you're up against a group that won't eat an egg that a chicken laid on the Sabbath, good luck with that one. You're going to have a hard time beating a crowd like that. But Jesus is not talking about effort because righteousness does not come through effort. Righteousness is a gift of grace from God himself. And the only way our righteousness can be worth anything, let alone better than the scribes and Pharisees, is for God to manifest. That's the word Paul used. Manifest his righteousness to us and give it to us as a gift of grace. So, verse 3, he begins. Now, this is a section called the Beatitudes. The word makarios in the Greek probably means more than anything we could really describe with English. Some have said this means blessed. It, it really means more than that. It doesn't mean these people will be blessed if they do these things. No, they're, they're already doing them, it seems, in what... The word makadrios uh, really means it, in, in the Greek text is more of a congratulations. It's, it's almost like saying, congratulations, you get it. You get it. it. It'd be like sometimes when people come to me and they say, Pastor, I know I failed God and I sin. I feel so terrible about it and, and I don't even deserve forgiveness. And, and I know I, I, I deserve to be condemned to hell and, and my heart is just breaking and I don't know whether God could, could, could ever wipe the sin away that I've committed. I want to just look at them and say, congratulations, you get it. Because for every one of those, there's a thousand that says, well, I don't feel like what I've done so bad. Or I feel like I'm going to heaven because I've been a pretty good person. Or I don't think God would send anybody to hell. All of those people don't get it. They just don't get it. But Jesus says there's congratulations in order. 
He starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Man, the poor in spirit is the man who already knows that he doesn't have, take to have what it takes to meet either life or God. I can't make it on my own. I can't do it on my own. Congratulations. I, 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 I got to have some help. There's nothing, I'm, I'm inadequate. Man, you, you, do you realize that there are actually people in this world that are millionaires and billionaires that are born-again Christians because they realize with all of the $2,000 Italian suits hanging in the closet and the Maserati and all of that that they've got in their life, they also realize that without a relationship with Jesus Christ, they cannot meet the world. And they know without Jesus Christ, they will never be ready to meet God. They're rich in wallet, poor in spirit. And you're like, hey, I got it on them. You're poor in both, right? <laughs> you're ahead of them, see? How cool is that? I'll, Joel Osteen will make you feel good about being rich. I'll make you feel good about being poor as a snake, okay? His church will always be bigger, though, I can tell you that. The poor in spirit, he, he or she realizes his or her own futility. That is so powerful. And the word that he uses for poor, there are two words in the Greek for poor. One means that you just live from paycheck to paycheck that you barely get by. But tokos is a word that means abject poverty. You are so poor, you don't have a paycheck. You don't have a way of getting by. You are absolutely destitute. And that's the word he uses here. He says, blessed, congratulations is the man that realizes that on his own, he is absolutely destitute and cannot do it without God. In this world, I can tell you, man, the weak of spirit don't make it very far. In this world, we applaud those who, boy, they're bold and, and arrogant and all of that. But someone has said, and I think it's so true, if you want to cure your arrogance, get to know God and yourself. And when you really realize who you are and you realize who God is, you will know immediately you have no reason whatsoever to be arrogant about anything. About anything. Sundar Singh, you've heard of him before. He's the one, he's a missionary, was a missionary in India. He's dead now, but he's the one that told the story about the guy that was killed. His whole family was killed in front of him, his children, then his wife. And while they were killing them, Sundar Singh said he wrote the words to the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. And the more they killed and butchered, the louder he sung. And they finally killed him. Sundar Singh was a Christian missionary in India. Someone asked him one time because, man, they would come to hear him preach by the thousands. And someone asked him one time, he says, does it not make you prideful? Do you ever struggle with pride because so many thousands of people come to hear you preach? And he said, no. And he said, I'll tell you why. He said, I'm like the donkey that Jesus rode in on. 
He said that donkey knew that the day Jesus came into Jerusalem that all the praise and all the limbs in the streets and all the crowds shouting Hosanna, the donkey never one time thought that was for him. He knew it was for the one that he carried. He said, I always know I'm the donkey. Man, sometimes we might need to be reminded that we're the donkey. And if you really need a good dose, we'll do it in the King James language. It's more descriptive. Secondly, he says in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning can be a good thing. As a matter of fact, there's an old Arab proverb that says all sunshine makes a desert, and a desert is absolutely worth nothing. It has nothing to offer. You die in the desert. And I think when it comes to us, and I don't wish ill will or bad times on any of us, but I can tell you the unbroken most of the time have almost nothing to offer. Brokenness can absolutely refocus and recalibrate your whole life. As a matter of fact, if you read Psalm 51, that's where David was broken. He was a broken man. He says, God, I've lost the joy of your salvation. My bones ache. I can't sleep. I'm sick, God. I took another man's wife. Then I had a good, righteous man killed. Then I'd lie about it and act like it never happened. God, I am, I am I'm so destitute, God. I need your loving kindness and, and your mercy. And, and then he says, once you forgive me, God, then, then I will show transgressors your way. And I will teach them about you, God. But until David was broken, he wasn't ready for that. Matter of fact, old Peter, he was a man. He was a, a great apostle. And, and boy, you got to, I know we give him a hard time sometimes, but Peter was always ready to say whatever needed to be said. The problem was Peter was also ready to say a lot of stuff that didn't need to be said. And Jesus looked at him one day and he said, oh, by the way, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you. And we would have thought, but Jesus set him straight, right? No, he said, I'm going to let him. I'm going to let him. Now, that tells me one thing right off the bat, that Satan don't get to do anything unless God lets him do it. But you need sifting, Peter. You know, when you sift grain, you take what is useless, what's unedible, what ruins the grain, you take it and you separate it. It's called chaff. And once it's separated, then the grain is far, far more valuable. And sometimes when God sifts us, friend, there are things in our life, maybe we're mad at the world about something, maybe we got our focus on something besides God and Whatever it might be, I can tell you, being broken before God can be one of the most blessed things that you've ever experienced. If you've been through brokenness and you know the benefits it brings, would you say amen? Amen. Sometimes brokenness, it's what it takes. Now, there are those that whine. Because they regard their plight as worthy of a lot of attention. But I can tell you, 
Brokenness is a whole different thing. It, it, it's almost like you really don't know that God is all you need until you've walked in a place where He was all you had. And once you've been there, that'll change you. So mourning, oh, our world today, they don't want to hear all that. I would tell you the world wrote the book, The Power of Positive Thinking, but sorry, that was written by a preacher. That's the problem. We're not preaching the gospel. Blessed are those who mourn. Brokenness might be seen as negative in, in our culture. Some people would even say, I don't want to be broken. Look, I need to be comforted. I, I, I need for people to stop trying to help me and just let me live my life. That's the problem. That's the problem. I just want to be myself. Man, are you not tired of being yourself? I don't want to be you. I see you. I see the decisions the big you in your life make. You, you is not too smart. Really? Nobody else wants to be you. You're fighting to get to be a fool. Give it up. Give it up and let God transform your mind and thinking. Verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's the strong and uncontrolled that want the earth. They want to dominate it, but Jesus says, guess what? Little secret, it's the meek that's going to get it. It's the meek that'll get it. Prowess is the word here for meek. And boy, I love this word because it means gentle or controlled, but not weak. Meek and weak are two different things. And, and the best way to picture meekness is a beast that has been tamed. You don't want to break the beast's legs. He's worthless then. If you have a horse, you want to break the horse with bit and bridle, and you want to be able to use the horse. But if the horse is kicking you and throwing you off, you don't cut one of his legs off. You ruin the horse. You want to control that horse. And so when God says, blessed are the meek, he is not saying to us, you need to be weak, be a pushover, never really care about anything, mind your own business forever and ever. That's not what he is saying. But he is saying, be strong. Strong, but be controlled by the Spirit of God. Such a powerful word. I, I used to always say this. I, I just thought about it this morning, but it's been so long since I mentioned it. I doubt anybody here remembers it. But I used to have a friend of mine, Reed Tomlin, and he had a dairy in Statesville, Ireland County, North Carolina. And I used to love to go down to Reed's and go in the old milking room and see all that stuff. A lot of things that reminded me of how I was raised. But Reed had a dairy bull. And if you know anything about farms and cattle, if a dairy bull doesn't kill you, you got a good chance of living forever. They're the meanest bulls I've ever seen. We raised Black Angus beef cattle when I was growing up. But he had a big old dairy bull, and I want to tell you something. He was a beast. He weighed at least 2,000 pounds, if not more. And when you would get close to the fence, he would just trace 
leaps back and forth. And when he would breathe, the leaves and dirt would just curl up as those big old huge nostrils would flare. And he was begging you, please come get in this pasture. I hadn't got to kill anybody in nearly a week. Reed had a ring in his nose. And he had a long chain hanging on the ring like a heavy-duty dog chain, not log chain. And that old bull was traipsing back and forth. And I watched Reed one day. He got down to that far end and was about to turn around. And Reed stepped through the fence and he grabbed that chain. And when that bull whirled around and looked and started to head this way, Reed just took that chain and did that. And when those wobbles got to his head, his head did that. Reed did it up and down when those wobbles got there. He was, <laughs> he actually did that. <laughs> he never came toward Reed. Now, the bull wasn't smart enough to know if I come towards you, you can't pull the chain. He just knew, boy, you got something in my nose, and I don't like it. Reed dropped that chain got out of the pen. Old bull went back to traipsing and tromps. And finally, I remember hearing later he had to sell him because he almost killed somebody, sure enough. It was Reed's wife. But that was a beast. That was control. It's like when they take a stake, push it in the ground with their hand, and take a cord and tie it to an elephant's leg, and he stays there all day. He's trained. That cord couldn't hold him. So men, let me just say this, especially to us. God's not looking for weak men. He's looking for meek, meek men. We have enough compromise in our world. We need to stand firm, but we need to be controlled. We need to be controlled. God is not impressed with your anger. He's not impressed with your ability to tell everybody all. That doesn't impress him at all. He wants us to stand firm, but to be controlled by Him. Let's, let's do one more. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Man, these Jews already thought they were righteous. They couldn't believe that He would ever question their righteousness. But here's the thing. He didn't say, blessed are the righteous. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for it. You see, I hunger and thirst for it because I know I cannot produce it on my own. I have to get my righteousness from God Almighty because unless He gives it to me, I can never attain it. But God says, I want you to hunger and thirst for that. I want you to long for the day when I step, stand to my feet in glory and I say, that is enough. And I bring my angels and I come and I get my church and I take it home. And I finally put an end to all of the wickedness in this world. He says, I want you to hunger and thirst for those kinds of days. And know that it is a gift of grace. He says, they will be satisfied. Wow. This is a word from God. God is preaching. Oh, not me. I, he's preaching on this little hillside. It's amazing. And I think that church will do ourselves good 
to spend some time here and let Jesus remind us of just what he did teach. Not what we always say about Jesus. Man, people have some of the craziest ideas nowadays about what Jesus was all about, and they make him into whatever it is they want him to be. I can tell you something. You want to know what Jesus thought and what Jesus said? We're right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of it. Let's pray to him. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much, God, that you have preserved it all these years, God, so that we could have it and read it. And Lord, then your spirit comes and your spirit, Lord, it it indwells your word and your word is alive. Lord, we thank you for that. I pray, God, you'll help us as a church. Help us, God, to take a fresh look at what you have to say about your kingdom. And God, I pray you'll help us to do a better job of living in your kingdom alongside the world's kingdom. Lord, I pray that we can distinguish between the two. And I pray, Lord, when they see our lives that they will know there's something different about us. That we have a different set of values. We have a different desire. We have a different longing in our heart. We have needs that this world cannot satisfy, God. I pray, Lord, that they would see that in us. I pray, God, that we would be a witness for you like never before. God, we give this day to you now. I pray we'd leave here different people. I pray, God, we've learned. And I pray, Lord, we will apply what we've learned. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.